Welcome back to the Cordell and Cordell and Men's Divorce podcast. Scott Trout, CEO and managing partner of Cordell and Cordell. Two times every week, we bring you information for guys with regards to divorce, modifications, paternities, contempts, you name it. And today is no different. We're joined by Ashley out of Cranberry, Pennsylvania. Welcome. Hi, Scott. Hey, glad to have you. And so just a reminder, obviously, uh, consultations, we always say it, give us a call, 866-STANS-LAW. It is the only way to get legal advice. You want to make sure you get your facts, your circumstances, documents, anything that's going on in your case in front of an attorney, someone who practices exclusively in family law. That is really the only way to get it. We can't give you legal advice through this podcast. Obviously, we want you to take some notes. We want to uh, create some talking points that you can take to an attorney. We have offices around the country. Check us out, CordellCordell.com. You'll find an office near you. Check out social media. Also, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. When we update it twice each week, you can get an alert and see if that topic interests you. Otherwise, you can go to our YouTube channel. It is full of information. We've been doing this for 15 months or so, and we're going to continue to do that as we move forward. So let's get right to it and talk about today's topic, which is really... Uh, issues regarding support and alimony and earning capacity and how do we determine that, the basics of figuring that out. It is a question that many guys, when they come in for a consultation, they may have a stay-at-home spouse, someone who's been out of the market. How do we figure that out? Maybe they're only working an hour or 10 or part-time. What is it really? What is their earning capacity? What can they earn? And that is really what we're here to talk about. So Ashley, let's really talk about earning capacity and what, what does that mean? Sure. So earning capacity, I mean, you've alluded to it, you know, the most basic, it means someone is not on paper earning what they could otherwise earn. That's pretty much the most direct way to explain it. And I think it comes up in more cases than people realize. We'll have a lot of people that show up at, you know, initial consultations or the first meeting with their attorney and say, well, she doesn't make any money. So I'm going to have to pay her. And then, you know, that's a conversation I have over and over again. Well, just because they don't show money on paper doesn't mean the court won't hold them to an earning capacity. Um, and, And it's based on a whole lot of things, and it's pretty jurisdiction specific. I know, so for us in Pennsylvania, it's even specific based on what county you're in, what the different judges will kind of consider. So it's one of those areas that, as soon as I hear someone say we have an earning capacity issue, you need an attorney because you need yeah. someone who knows what they're doing. You know, it's funny. I uh, Before in my previous life, I'll say, I know I've been doing this for 28 years or so, um, I did some employment defense work. And earning capacity, when you're doing, for example, wrongful termination actions, you're trying to figure out what can someone earn because they claim they're unemployed and they can't make money. And I used to use an expert, a vocational rehabilitationist expert, and then I translated that into family law when I came into family law. And that is really what we've been using. And But that earning thing, I just had a consultation on, on this past weekend, on Saturday. And the question was, a spouse is kind of just by agreement, has been working very infrequently and you know and we've been talking about spousal support alimony maintenance and we talked about earning capacity and you know right out of the gate he said she can earn more okay okay let's talk about what that is and so when we talk about earning capacity it's real easy to point to maintenance alimony but it also goes for child support doesn't it correct yeah and and sometimes 
we're seeing that more frequently, especially again in my jurisdiction. Um, that's one of the first things people come to us and they've got child support hearings and those support, you know, or initial um, conferences, and those are scheduled two weeks away. Yeah. And we have to kind of scramble because we know there's an earning capacity. Um, and, you know, I think on the most basic level, when people think of support, the first question is, well, give me your pay stubs, give me your tax returns, because that's what we base income on if we can. Mm -hmm. But again, as we've both been indicating, there are circumstances both for opposing parties and our clients where we may be the ones with an earning capacity. Um, yep. And we may, you know, our clients may be the ones working, but we still have an earning capacity argument on that too. Um, so the most common one that at least I've seen in my practice, and, and you can certainly weigh in, is that kind of traditional either, you know, work at home parent or parent who's kind of stepped back from their job to take care of the kids or is part-time. And what, I mean, there's a minimum earning capacity so I always tell people in, in our jurisdiction, our minimum wage is, you know, $15,080 a year. Mm -hmm. um, that's absent some extraordinary circumstance. That is the minimum wage that the courts will use. And when I say extraordinary circumstance, if we have a disabled child that they're staying home with, or um, if the other party has disability or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, now, I will say, again, I'm speaking about Pennsylvania specifically because that's what I know. I know there are states that have laws about um, that relate to the ages of children. Pennsylvania used to be one of those where we had, you know, and I, I think it was three. It was before my time practicing, yeah. but there was a tender years doctrine where, you know, basically you were permitted to be at home. And... There is another side to that earning capacity, which you know, I, I don't want to get too heavily into, but there, are, there is the other side to that, which is the cost of childcare. So we may be able to get the other party up to minimum wage earnings, but I've had multiple times the court say, okay, well then we're going to also apply the expense of childcare, mm -hmm. even though there is no childcare. So again, you think it may just be easy to say, oh, she can work more, but it's actually a pretty complex argument or can be a complex argument that they have to make. It is. It, it, this whole area is complex and it was probably even made more complex when the Congress decided to eliminate the tax deductibility of maintenance payments for the obligor because a lot of child support was factored in. And now we have to think about, as you suggest, is minimum wage the best approach? You got to look at daycare costs and expenses. What does that do? You look at disabilities, you look at history. You know, I, I've dealt with it and, and guys are listening. This isn't just a divorce problem. For me, it's a modification problem. If you're paying maintenance right now, uh, I just I tried a case where we had a very short-term marriage, about six to eight years, but he'd been paying child or uh, maintenance for about 15. And we had a spouse, ex-spouse, who had still done nothing over the course of 15 years to better themselves, get a job, albeit they had a real estate license and nursing license. They could have done it. So we clearly an underemployed situation where we have to show the court certain issues with regards to that. But it is complex. And uh, no doubt, I, I have to say that it's rare when I get a case in the door where uh, my client is suggesting that they're at the highest potential level of employment that they can get. It is rare um, because it, whether it's by agreement, whether you have young kids that you have an agreement to stay home and, or I have a client who's a stay-at-home dad, I call it manimony. 
you know, that's where, you know, he's eligible for, for alimony, but you've got to be careful. And you're not only fighting that battle of unemployed, but you're finding, uh, fighting perhaps a gender discrimination because, oh, get off your butt and go to work. He's a guy. I've had that argument with judges before. And so we want equality, blind justice kind of thing. And that's always important. But I guess when you think about it, um, one thing that comes to mind, I have a client in the restaurant business, is that underemployed in COVID? Could they be doing something else? Where's the income going? You know, could they be drawing more money out of the business? Isn't that something that also could be you know, talked about? Right. So I do want to just circle back on one thing because you pointed out some of the issues that changes in the government and the laws and have affected unemployment has been one of the biggest issues why we've been running for modifications and it's the unemployment bump for lack of a better term that COVID has created where now we're enticing people in a lot of cases to maybe not go work because they're making more on unemployment and that's not what we originally calculated and so it becomes kind of this really complicated argument both with an earning capacity but also identifying kind of what they're making and knowing the laws, knowing what these COVID packages kind of are adding to the pot of earning capacity. So I just wanted to kind of point up on that because I think I've never seen as many modifications and support um, in my cases as I've seen in the last year and hundred yeah. percent because of COVID. Yeah. Um, but on businesses. So, right. So a lot of the big ones we see are seasonal workers. Um, my, you know, it's people that work in schools but aren't aren't salaried. So we have like lunch staff or um, maintenance staff that maybe collect unemployment during the summer and work during the school year, or um, construction workers, pipeline workers. That's you know a big. They get these. You know, they're essentially independent contractors, mm. and they work for twelve different people in a year. That's really difficult. So that's when we kind of can look at earning capacities. Look at past tax returns, that's the first thing I do when there is a potential earning capacity is I say, well, give me the last three years of tax returns or let's pull the social security statements. Since we don't get them in the mail anymore, you can get them online. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's because that can help in the argument, but businesses and, and I've found normally I'm the one arguing that it's a lower income in a business because it's my usually, you know, my client that has the business but you also have to be prepared for the other side of that because obviously the other party is going to want your income to be as high and you're going to want your income to be as low. Mm -hmm. yep. um, businesses bring its own. And, and I actually have a pizza, have had a pizza shop client too. So it's funny mm -hmm. you said that where, because that's such a cash based business, um, hairdressers, anyone that has tip centraled income is really difficult because although the federal regulations say there's a certain percentage you have to declare of tips, there's no one policing that. Right. So it does become very difficult to, um, to kind of figure out what it could be. And, and I think businesses get special treatment, although some of it has been reduced by some of the tax changes, because there are a lot of loopholes where you may be bringing in $400,000, but through basically write-offs and, mm -hmm. and deductions, you're only showing a profit of $40,000. Yeah. And that's something, that's one of the first things I latch onto with a client is, okay, let's really get into this because in a lot of jurisdictions, the first step, and I certainly know, again, in, in, in Pennsylvania, our first step is what's called a domestic relations officer. They're not an attorney. They're not a judge. They're, they just have training on how to basically put numbers in a computer. Hmm. Um, 
So you need an attorney who can kind of direct them on what numbers to put in because they don't necessarily, I mean, they don't know how to read tax returns and some are much better than others, obviously. Um, So that is, you know, the businesses are probably the most difficult to deal with when it comes to earning capacity. Mm -hmm. And if you're just not working, that's easier to say, well, they have a degree in this, this is what these people Um, And then you get to, you know, depending on how far the case gets, you get to those experts, like you were saying before, um, which have, are invaluable. Um, I don't get to use them as often as, as I would, you know, hope to, but I guess Mm -hmm. that's more because people don't want to do a trial on their support issues. Um, And I found a lot of courts, if you have an attorney that has some respect within the court, they can come in with some of those search, you know, online searches for what a hairdresser makes on average or my favorite, I just had one where she did um, eyelash extensions. Yeah. And I thought there's no way, I mean, she's making probably just above minimum wage. And then I actually, my client was like, no, like she's making a lot of money. And I went in and actually looked and researched and found out, no, she was making or should be making around like 75 a year. Crazy. Huge. Yeah. I mean, even the, we've done a podcast on these online businesses where you're selling makeup or beauty supplies or whatever, um, earning capacity, they only show, Oh, you know, minimum wage, but what are they really earning? I mean, that's could be a forensic look, but you're, you know, that's the point is what is the capacity? What can they be doing? Maybe that's a, you know, a for fun enterprise. Yeah. And they claim that they're working 40 hours a week, but they're not making any money, but yeah, there's just so much you can do in this area. And when I talk to guys, they always think, well, child support is formulaic, right? You just plug in the numbers. Yeah, but let's talk about income. Let's not give up on the idea that we can impute more money to the other spouse or whatever it may be. But it likewise works. And I've had this where I had a, a doctor who's a surgeon and you know, he'd been a surgeon for many, many years, standing on his feet and eventually it caught up with him where he had started having back issues. And so we were, he wanted, he needed to retire. And the question became, what is his earning capacity? Oh, he's underemployed. He's start, he slowed his surgeries down. He slowed, you know, the earning in. And so you can work that defensively, can't you, in terms of whether or not you're the recipient of the target of either earning more and you choose to earn less or early retirement or whatever that may be. Right. And I think that's especially applicable when it's a type of business where essentially you are the business. So you're not, you are the product that you're selling like a surgeon or attorneys that are solo practicing attorneys. Yeah. I had a couple of those cases too, where if you say, I want to retire, if you're not practicing law, what is your earning capacity? I mean, you, mm-hmm. you are your income. Um, and that's where you try to look and, and you make arguments on ages. I think in those cases, 99% of the time, those are our, we need an expert cases mm-hmm. um, because they're not just as easy as saying, oh, she previously worked as an accountant. Here's what the average accountant makes. Here's what she could make. Yeah. Um, much more specialized. But, but yeah, that's a, that's a huge earning capacity argument. You can't expect someone to be on their feet working as a surgeon into their you know 80s, 90s. Yeah, I just met with a gentleman who owns a plumbing business, and over the last year, he made um, twice what he's ever made. Just things were busy, and some some of the trades just either down, didn't want to get involved in it, kind of took some time off. It was actually probably made more money with COVID and stimulus and unemployment or whatever it may be, 
And so that's another example to show maybe the inconsistency of his, his stream of income. This is a year, it was a banner year, and you need a, an expert, an accountant, or someone to say, look, one year out of 15, you can't use this X great banner year because you look at 21 to date, he's way off pace and he's still trying to do the same thing. Isn't that another area? Right. And I think it also goes the other way where I know we had a lot of clients and potential clients who maybe didn't have such a great 2020, you know, because of COVID and Mm -hmm. everything. And, you know, we want to kind of, you know, or opposing parties really who are saying, oh, this is my new income. And we want to take that and say, oh, no, that was just a bad year. Your income actually this capacity. Um, and again, tax returns, history, social security um, records are the best way to kind of make either one of those arguments. Yeah. Um, kind of wrapping it up, the idea is be proactive, right? Get in front of it, get with an attorney. I mean, we talk about this every podcast, and that is knowledge is power and information and knowing. That's why I think consults are probably the best time you'll ever spend. There's no commitment other than the fact to sit down for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever you want to understand what the law is, what you, what is likely to happen, kind of what is available out there and what you should be doing to prepare, right? Right. And I think it also can go beyond support issues. So, you know, Mm -hmm. especially when you're pulling in experts and, and I've said that several times because, you know, they become very integral parts, but a business valuation expert or an earning capacity, you know, expert can help identify assets that maybe you didn't know while we're trying to untangle income. Um, I think it does stretch beyond and and the best way to figure out if it's applicable to you is to talk to an attorney who does this. Yep. Well, Ashley, thanks again for joining. This is a great topic that, as you suggest, applies not just in you know the, the category of just support. It's it's really in divorce and modification. It could be in any particular issue within family law, and it's a, it's a great topic. So thanks for joining. Thanks, Scott. Well, continue to tune in. Things just like this, where these podcasts will bring you some information over a course of 15 minutes and just really meaty subject and topic and speaking points you can take to an attorney who practices exclusively in the area of family law. Well, tune in and look for our virtual town hall coming up here in April. You want to go to CordellCordell.com where you can log in, get online during this uh, town hall and ask questions live of the panel of Cordell and Cordell attorneys and get answers right then and right there. You don't want to miss out, but you got to register. So subscribe to these podcasts and then continue to look out for more information. We're also going to have seminars in person. We're starting those back up around the country. So if you're listening and you're in Jackson, Mississippi, you're in Fort Lauderdale or Miami, or you're in the Denver, Colorado area, go ahead and log on to those pages on our website Look for those information about the 10 stupidest mistakes guys make when facing divorce. It's important. It's great stuff. You won't want to miss out, but you do need to register in order to attend. So if you're in those areas, check it out, and we'll continue to roll those out around the country as we uh, roll out of this pandemic and get back to some sense of normalcy. So until then, have a great week.